This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome. You have stumbled into my audio imaginarium. So come on in and uh, leave your shoes at the door. Come sit a spell, warm yourself in the glow of the radio dial. This is a, a program dedicated to the proposition that, uh, well, there is more to this world, I guess, than we can uh, see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. And uh, as uh, Morpheus uh, said, the world is being pulled over our eyes. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Perhaps you've noticed my website, richardserrett.com, has been hijacked. Again, this is the second time, I would say, in the last month. And so I've decided, rather than get my web hosts uh, to make a temporary fix, as they did the last time, uh, because they tell me I'm using an old, uh, a very old edition of Joomla, I don't know exactly what that means. Joomla uh, is, uh, I guess, the platform. Anyway, it's, uh, it's old. It has uh, a lot of back doors, and, uh, and so it's very easily hacked. So what I'm going to do, rather than have them fix it yet again, is I'm going to essentially uh, leave the, uh, the website offline for the time being. I'm going to take this time to redesign it, revamp it, and relaunch richardserrett.com just as soon as I am able and uh, I'm actually kind of excited. This is, um, you know, whoever hijacked the site, uh, if you think you've, you know, done some injury to yours truly, uh, in fact, you've done the exact opposite. This has sort of reju- rejuvenated me and uh, uh, recommitted me, or I am recommitted, rather, to, um, uh, to improving the website. So richardserrett.com, the new improved website, will be up, as I say, just as soon as I'm able uh, to get that done. In the meantime... Uh, For those of you listening online around the world, you can listen to the live stream, as always, at zoomerradio.ca. And what you do is you just click on the red button on the right-hand side on the homepage that says click here to listen live. And if you want to listen to previous shows, you can go to uh, a number of places, but uh, talkzone.com is is one of them. Talkzone.com if you want to listen to old shows. Uh, So, tonight... Just about a week and a half from the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK, uh, we're going to present the eighth and final installment of our ongoing JFK Connecting the Dots series. 
If you're like me and you're too young to remember the actual Kennedy assassination, then Oliver Stone's film JFK probably has informed much of what you know and believe about what actually transpired in Dallas in 1963. And it's also quite likely then that your introduction to Jim Garrison, the crusading New Orleans district attorney who holds the distinction of being the only man to, to ever prosecute anyone in the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, it's likely your introduction to Garrison was provided by the actor Kevin Costner, who portrayed Garrison in Stone's JFK film. So tonight, we're going to take a look at the life and times of Jim Garrison, who is simultaneously revered as a true American hero and truth seeker by those who do not subscribe to the Warren Commission or reviled as a reckless crackpot by those who do. And here to help us separate wheat from chaff, fact from fiction, is assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. He's the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, and the just-released Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the new Hollywood. James D. Eugenio, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Okay, fine. Let me ask you, first of all, uh, you know, I, I, I found it interesting uh, that uh, Costner, Kevin Costner, was selected to play uh, Jim Garrison. I, I want to get your, your thoughts. I mean, uh, here we are. I guess it's been – this is about the 20th anniversary, I think, of, of, uh, of JFK. And I always found – No, actually, it's no? 22 years. It's 22 years now, 1991 that came out. But it's right. – I always found Costner to be an interesting choice by Stone. Uh, first of all, uh, politically, Costner, from what I understand, was was and is remains close friends with uh, George W. Bush. Uh, so, sort of politically, I don't think he would have had much in common with Jim Garrison. Well, no, I don't think so. No, but what, what do you? First of all, before we get into Garrison's life, what did you make of of, of Costner's portrayal of Garrison? Was it accurate? Well, let's put it this way: if if I could have picked any actor to play Jim Garrison, it probably wouldn't be Kevin Costner. You know, he was really hot at the time, you know, uh, and, you know, he helped get the picture made, all right? But as far as him portraying, you know, uh, Jim Garrison, um, Zach Squire, the co-writer of the screenplay, actually wanted John Voight, okay? But Voight wasn't as big of a star as Costner at that time. And I think John Voight would have been really good, you know, because I, I think, you know, John Voight is a much more resourceful and subtle actor than Costner, you know. Um, I, I didn't think, see, that that long speech at the end, Yes. Uh, which I think Voight could have done a better job with that speech, Okay. You know, I, I, I don't think Kevin was as, you know, was was up to that, you know, was, was up to delivering a very long soliloquy like that, you know. Uh, but I will say this about Costner. Ever since he's done that movie, he has, he has been completely into this whole JFK stuff. He's really interested in this stuff. He is now. You know? Oh, yeah, ever since he did that movie. That's interesting because I read an interview with him once where he uh, – now, this is going back a few years, so maybe he, he, he's changed his mind on a number of things. But at one time, 
uh, Costner said that if he had sat on that jury, he would have voted in, in terms of uh, you know Clay Shaw. He would have voted not guilty. But I guess over the over the course of uh, these twenty one years, uh, and much has come out. Maybe he well, even read well, Destiny. Wait a betray- second, Richard. I, I think I think what he's trying to say is that you know because of all the things that were against Garrison, right? You know the evidence that he produced in that courtroom probably wasn't enough, you know, to convict the guy. I mean, I probably would have voted Clay Shaw not guilty. Oh, really? That's know? interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, because of the, of, the, of the evidence. Now, let me say this. Today, I think Shaw's guilty of sin. Okay? I mean, there's, I don't think there's any question about it today. You know, and the lie about the lies about Clay Shaw, you know, are, pi- are piled up to, uh, to a mountain size. You know, the cover-up that went on about him. But all I'm saying is, as far as what was presented in court, Okay, I probably would have voted them not guilty. Now, as we know, the two substitute members listened to the evidence, and they actually said he was guilty. Okay, although the people on the actual jury didn't see it that way. Now, you got to understand the first of all, because Garrison was so sick, he did not conduct most of the trial. Okay. Uh, he only, had, I think he only, was only there for about three witnesses, delivered the opening, and delivered one of the summations, okay? Nobody knew the evidence that was in Garrison's files like he did, okay? So that was, you know, and people have made up all these stories about why Garrison wasn't there, but I found out because of a letter he wrote to, you know, one of the people who followed his trial that... He was really ill. He had a, this historic back condition, which was really acting up at the time, you know, and he had the Hong Kong flu at the same time he had this horrible back condition. So that's why he wasn't there a lot of the time. You know, the other problem, uh, the other problem was, of course, so many of the subpoenas he had issued uh, came back empty-handed. So a lot of the witnesses that he wanted to get there weren't there, okay? You know, and then thirdly, the sabotage of the trial, you know, because the FBI and the CIA were monitoring the trial, you know, day and night, and the Justice Department. In my book, Destiny Betrayed, I talk about the earthquake that went off in Washington when Pierre Fink testified, all right? Uh, When Pierre Fink, see, and this is another thing. The media control of the trial was also very important. One of the things that I discovered is that a guy named James Phelan, who was writing for the Saturday Evening Post, you know, invited all the people, the media in town, to go ahead. He had rented the house, and they would go there every evening after their trial. He would then bring out an easel and a chalk, a piece of chalk, and essentially wrap out what the next day's story is going to be. I know this because I talked to one of the guys who was covering the trial. You know, Now, Phelan did not actually cover the trial himself, but he was covering it by, you know, he was being set up at this house, probably by the FBI, to go ahead. and Now, when Fink testified, that testimony should have been on the front page of every store, every newspaper in America. Explain who Peter Fink is, or was. Okay, Pierre Fink 
was one of the three autopsy pathologists who was there at Bethesda that night, okay? And he was actually one of the witnesses to what is probably the worst autopsy in history of America, okay? The autopsy that went to President John F. Kennedy was an utter and complete disgrace, you know? And you can, you can start almost anywhere you want to start at of how bad it was. But just to give you one example, allegedly there were two wounds in President Kennedy, one in the back one in the, and one in the skull. And any kind of homicide, what you're supposed to do if you're an autopsy doctor is you're supposed to dissect those wounds. That is, you go ahead and stick you know, a metal probe through and have it come out the other end, all right? And then you trace it, okay, the, the track of the wound, all right, to find directionality and if the wound went through and through. As far as a, one a bullet that hits the skull, what you have to do there is section off the brain so that you can trace the bullet path through the brain, okay? Now, in this particular case, the murder of President Kennedy, the, probably the most important murder case in the whole 20th century in this country, all right? Neither one of those was done. Neither wound was dissected. So therefore, to this day, we don't know if the wounds were through and through wounds, that if they penetrated all the way through, or number two, from what direction they came from. There's a debate about this, you know, 50 years later. That's how bad that autopsy was. Well, one of the things that Garrison was determined to air during a trial was why was the wound of the back not dissected? All right? Now, Fink did not want to answer that question. Because I, I actually was one of the very few people to actually have the transcript of that. Okay? And... I detail that whole thing in my book, Destiny Betrayed. And so he refused to answer the question. The DA, the assistant DA, Alvin Oser, had to repeat the question eight times. Finally, he had to go to the judge. All right? And the judge directed Fink to answer the question. And Fink finally answered the question. And he said, because the military brass in the gallery interfered with the autopsy. In other words, for the first time, the trial of Clay Shaw was in 1969. President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Six years after the fact, the American public finally found out that the military brass in the gallery was controlling and running the autopsy of President Kennedy. That should have been on the front banner headline of the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And, if, and it should have been the lead story in the nightly news, NBC, ABC, and CBS. Of course, it was not. All right? All right, James, because listen, we have that, to take a time out. That actually explained why there was no dissection in the back one. All right, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, continue to delve into the life and times of Jim Garrison. Crusading New Orleans District Attorney, 
who holds the distinction of being the only person to ever prosecute anyone for the assassination of President Kennedy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, Part 8 of our ongoing series, uh, JFK Connecting the Dots. This is our final installment. James D. Eugenio uh, with us, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And tonight we delve into the life and times of famed New Orleans DA, Jim Garrison. Uh, let's, let's let's do a little bit of uh, a chronology uh, here, uh, Jim. Take us back to, I guess, late 66 when Garrison, again then a New Orleans district attorney, began to investigate the assassination, you know, leading up to the arrest of, of Clay Shaw in 69. But take us back to 66 and, and Jack Martin and that whole, uh, uh, you know, the David Ferry and so forth. Six. It actually started in 63, okay, when uh, the lead came in to Herm Coleman from Jack Martin that Oswald was a friend of David Ferry's, okay? Because what had happened that afternoon, of course, as everybody famously knows, is watch JFK, which is going to be re-released this week. Um, Bannister, Di Bannister, and Martin had an altercation. At, after they went to back to get Bannister's office after drinking at the Catch and Jammer bar that afternoon. All right, and what seems to have happened is through the declassified files of DRB is that, is that Martin actually was trying to get at Bannister's Oswald file, okay, that afternoon. Okay, which of course Bannister had because Oswald was at five forty four Camp Street, okay, that summer of nineteen sixty three. And so Bannister essentially pistol whipped uh Martin, you know. And if Delphine Roberts would not have intervened, you know, Bannister might have really, really, you know, hurt Martin. So what happened is that Martin started making a series of phone calls. Uh, trying to tell people about what was really happening in Guy Bannister's office that summer with Oswald, Ferry, um, you know, Kerry uh, Thornley, uh, Sergio Acacia-Smith, all the Cuban exiles, etc. One of the calls went to Garrison's office, and Garrison called in Ferry for questioning. All right? Now, through the declassified files, we also know Something else was going on at this time. Ferry was trying to separate himself from Oswald. He was making various phone calls, okay, you know, uh, trying to find the famous cap picture, Civil Air Patrol picture, so that the authorities wouldn't get it. Trying to find if anybody knew that Oswald would use his library card that summer, okay? You know, uh, now, when Garrison called him for questioning, he didn't find his answers were credible, and so he turned him over to the FBI. They interviewed him. His FBI interview is prima facie evidence that J. Edgar Hoover didn't give a damn about who killed President Kennedy because Ferry lied his head off in that affidavit. All right? He said, for example, he never knew Oswald. He said he never had uh, never been able to use a telescopic rifle. He said he never even never would know how to use a telescopic rifle. This is a guy who was a trainer for the Bay of Pigs and Mongoose, all right? And so 
that's where the story stood after the FBI dismissed Harry. All right. Then later on, Garrison got drawn into the case again in late 1966 on a plane flight with Russell Long, the senator from Louisiana, you know, and rekindled his interest, you know, by telling him he didn't think the Warren Commission did a very good job. So Garrison ordered the 26 volumes, started to read them, and it reopened the case. And that's how it got started again. Now, Ferry, of course, one of the, was one of his early persons of interest, okay? To this day, nobody really knows how Ferry died, okay? But he did in February of 1967, just as the public was learning about Garrison's investigation after it was exposed by the local papers. So Garrison decided to move against a second suspect he had, uh, local businessman and CIA agent Clay Shaw. All right. He indicted Shaw. There was also a preliminary hearing. And at this point, when he indicted Shaw and he successfully got the preliminary hearing, all hell now began to break loose. Okay, because it's very clear from the declassified files that Washington did not want Garrison to succeed. And so in my book, Destiny Betrayed, and to a lesser extent in Reclaiming Parkland, I detail this incredible apparatus that was set up to make sure that Garrison would not succeed. And without the ARB declassified files, the Assassination Record Review Board, we would have never found out this stuff, okay, because it went beyond what I even thought it was, okay, what I even thought. For example, NBC Network, all right, um, actually cooperated with the work of producer Walter Sheridan, you know, in the, um, in the, the smear the hatchet job they did, the NBC white paper on Garrison. Uh, Sheridan had all kinds of money, and the CIA was helping them, okay, in, to produce that program, which was originally intended to be in two parts. I didn't know that either, all right? Um, the CIA had placed agents inside of Garrison's office at a much earlier stage than I thought they had. This goes all the way back to the, the end of 1966, you know, when very few people even knew that Garrison had an investigation. Alan Dulles actually hired one of these guys, Gordon Novell, to electronically wire Garrison's office, all right? When Garrison would not give up, even after the NBC hit piece was broadcast, the CIA set up set up a special office at Langley called the Garrison Group, all right? About six or seven very high officials, including Richard Helms' assistant, Thomas Karamacinas, you know, was, was sat in. We have the paper on four meetings, okay? Now, what I believe happened after the fourth meeting is that those strategy sessions then went into secret, Okay. They went uh, because at one of the meetings, uh, Mark, Victor Marchetti said Helms directed people to talk about things that they were going to do off the record. All right, and so the CIA even 
interface with local judges to see that Garrison's subpoenas would not be honored. Okay? We have that in declassified documents now. CI lawyers actually going to the chambers of the judges to be sure that, say, for example, Alan Dulles is not served with a subpoena. All right? Garrison's office was wired for sound by both the CIA and the FBI. Okay? And then, of course, the there were transcripts made, you know, of the surveillance. The FBI actually put a physical surveillance on Garrison, and they tapped his phone. All right? You know, the media took part in this also. You have pseudo-reporters who are actually intelligence agents, like James Phelan and Hugh Ainsworth, uh, began to take part in this effort. Hugh Ainsworth essentially worked for the FBI, the CIA, and the White House to obstruct Garrison's investigation. And through his contacts, his double agents in the office, and the contacts of local newspapers, you know, he actually went ahead and tried to bribe certain witnesses, okay, not to cooperate with Garrison, you know. I could go on and on. I mean, the, the stuff we found out about how intent Washington was to thwart this guy is absolutely astounding. And it's one of the most fascinating things about these new files. Of course, you won't see it on TV this week. There's like 15 shows coming out about um, Kennedy and his assassination, but you won't see anything from these new declassified files. All right? So people like you are the only people in your audience, the only people who know about it. Well, let, let's talk about some of the, the, uh, the key witnesses. Uh, uh, now, let's go back to Perry Russo. Who was okay. who was Perry Russo, and and uh, you know what was this conversation exactly that he supposedly overheard at a at a party? All right, Russo had been a friend of Ferry's uh, for quite a long time. All right, and then when Russo lived, I think uh, near Baton Rouge, which is uh, north uh, northwest of New Orleans. So when he read about Ferry you know, being indicted by Garrison. He wrote a letter to Garrison, and then Garrison sent one of his DAs up there, under Chambra, to interview Perry Russo. And Russo told him about this talk that he witnessed one night at Perry's apartment. All right? Um, there, it started off with several Cubans being there and some friends... Then as it winnowed out, the discussion went to um, an assassination plot against uh, President Kennedy. All right. So Russo had him ID some photos. All right. And so it turned out that Oswald was there, Perry was there, and a guy who he called Bertrand was there. All right. So Schomburg wanted to come in and and take um, sodium pentothal, which is true serum, and uh, a hypnosis session. And so that's how they tested his testimony. All right, now, this was something I did a lot of work on in Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, because this is one of the things that people like Phelan used to try and discredit Garrison. That Russo was using sodium pentothal on, on a key witness. So, no, no, Garrison was using sodium pentothal. Right. On, you know, and yeah. that somehow this was drug, 
Russo's testimony was not given freely. It was it was uh, coerced into him. Right. Right. And so, well, okay, this is very easily dispellable today. Okay. First of all, I found the guy who actually drove up to Baton Rouge to talk to Russo. A guy nobody tracked down before. A guy named Matt Heron. Matt Heron was a photographer for the Saturday Evening Post. All right. Now, if you read what Phelan says about this in Kirkwood's book, American Grotesque, you'll see that according to Phelan, Russo denied that he mentioned Shaw's name in Baton Rouge when he first approached him. All right. And that he uh, he wanted Matt Heron to be his witness if he ever had testified about this. Well, I said, well, wait a second. Why don't I track down Matt Heron and see what he has to say about this? So I tracked him down. I talked to him on two occasions. I told him. I asked him, did Russo tell you and Phelan, okay, that he mentioned Shaw's name in New Orleans or Baton Rouge? Okay. And he said, well, he said it was in Baton Rouge. He was very strong about this. So in other words, when I, when I discovered that Phelan was lying about something like that, you know, I said, why don't I check out the rest of the story? Well, it turns out that what Phelan and Shaw's lawyers did is they reversed the order of the two hypnosis sessions to make it appear that um, he was being coached. If you read them in the proper order, you know, which I, I had those right out of Garrison's files, because I was one of the very few people that was actually allowed to go ahead and copy these. Mayan Garrison, Garrison's son, allowed me and a few friends to copy his files. And so they're, they're, they're very clearly labeled A and B. And if you read them in that order, you'll see that Rousseau is not coached at all. All right, I've got to take a time out here. When we come back, let's talk about uh, Clem Bertrand, uh, okay. who Rousseau later pointed out in court was, in fact, Clay Shaw. Who was he and why was he part of this assassination team? Back with more of my conversation with James DiEugenio. Stay with us. Welcome back. James DiEugenio stays with us, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Jim Garrison case. And uh, tonight in our final installment of the JFK Connecting the Dots series, we uh, delve into the life and times of famed district attorney, New Orleans district attorney, James uh, Garrison, uh, who is uh, the only man to ever have prosecuted anyone for in the uh, for the assassination of John F. Kennedy? And of course, uh, the person that was arrested and tried was uh, a New Orleans businessman by the name of Clay Shaw, who had uh, prior to that been identified as uh, Clay Bertrand or Clem Bertrand. Uh, we were discussing one of the key witnesses, Perry Russo, who was uh, the individual who said that he uh, attended a party. Uh, where Clem Bertrand was in attendance, David Ferry was in attendance, and of course uh, uh, Oswald, who was introduced to Russo, I, I believe, as Leon Oswald. Right. It, it wasn't Oswald. In my book, In Destiny Betrayed, I came to the conclusion that it, that was not the real Oswald, that there actually was a Leon Oswald, because he's mentioned by several witnesses. So I came to the conclusion in my book that that was not really Lee Harvey Oswald. That was this Leon Oswald, who was one of the Oswald's doubles that was being used up in, you know, in the run-up to the assassination. Okay. Now, of course, Ferry is key because Ferry uh, can, can connect the dots between Oswald and, and Bannister. Ferry worked with right. Bannister, but also Ferry spent time with Oswald uh, in the, uh, the Civil Air Patrol. 
uh, back in the late mid to late 50s, I guess. So uh-huh. Ferry connects the dots between Oswald and Bannister. Ferry, though, is dead by 1967. Bannister is dead in 1964, I think, which leaves only yeah. this Clem Bertrand. Right. Later identified as Clay Shaw. So tell us, let's delve into into the into the life of of this Clem Bertrand, mm-hmm. Clay Shaw. Okay. Who was he? Well, Shaw's a very interesting kind of a complex figure. Um, he um, returned from the war, okay, working on in some intelligence units, okay, during the war, and then he began to. Since he was homosexual, he began to befriend some of the homosexual um, upper-class people in New Orleans at the time, one of which was Ted Brandt, uh, who was a bank owner. And Ted Brandt kind of got him into um, the whole international house, international trademark scene that was part of New Orleans, because New Orleans was, of course, the gateway in shipping to South America, all right? And it's at that time he becomes of interest to the Central Intelligence Agency, all right? And so once he enters into being the director of the International Trademark, okay, uh, he begins to be a very important agent to the CIA, all right? Now, the CIA and the House Select Committee have always always gave this baloney out about Shaw was only part of this businessman's program in which we interviewed at random certain people. Well, that turned out to be a bunch of baloney, all right? Uh, recently declassified at the National Archives was a document saying that Shaw was a very highly paid contract source for the CIA. In other words... He was briefed before he went on his travels in the Central and South America. He was paid handsome fees. For all intents and purposes, Shaw was a contract agent of the CIA, okay, which is something that he always denied, okay? He always denied, all right? And so the other people who, you know, have to, who, you know, tried to defend him and not garrison, you know, always, you know, try to deny that fact. Well, now it's a fact, all right, because we have the paper on this, all right? And Shaw was also a part of something called QK Enchant, which is a, a, a project, a CIA project, which, if you can believe it, we still don't know what his clearance entailed in that. But we do know that Howard Hunt also had that clearance, QK Enchant. So, for all intents and purposes, uh, Clay Shaw was a very important CIA agent, as well as being the director of this international trade line. Now, there's no doubt today, there's absolutely no doubt today, that Shaw lied his head off about who he knew and who he circulated with in New Orleans in the lead-up to the Kennedy assassination. All right? There's no doubt that Shaw knew Ferry. There's no doubt that Shaw knew Bannister. There's no doubt that Shaw was associated with Oswald, okay? Simply because we know now about the whole Clinton-Jackson incident that took place in August of 1963. 
in the two small hamlets about 90 minutes north of New Orleans. Okay, I've got to jump. I've got to jump in here again, James. Apologies. Uh, we'll take a time out, come back, and continue delving into the life and times of Jim Garrison, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And uh, a few moments remain with James D. Eugenio, author of Reclaiming Parkland. Uh, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the New Hollywood, which uh, just came out. And um, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison case. We're talking about uh, Jim Garrison. Now, you were mentioning the, uh, the uh, I guess there were a total of about uh, eight witnesses from Jackson and Clinton, Louisiana. These are two adjacent rural towns about 120 miles north of New Orleans. And these witnesses were the ones that testified they saw Clay Shaw I guess he was uh, driving up there in a black Cadillac to Clinton, and uh, they saw Shaw with Oswald and, and, and Ferry. These are two men, of course, Ferry well, and Oswald. There many more than eight witnesses. Okay. In fact, today you could name over a dozen, and there were probably more than that. Okay. But they testified um, because Shaw adamantly, as you pointed out, Shaw adamantly denied that he knew either Ferry or Oswald, and yet right. these witnesses were saying they saw Shaw in uh, in Clinton, Louisiana, there with these two men. There was a picture of the three of them in the car. Okay, one of Garrison's investigators actually tracked down a photo. It was not introduced as evidence in the trial because it was taken from a bad angle from a distance. And so when Garrison tried to blow it up, you know, it lost too much resolution. Okay, and they also found out that Oswald had actually signed up to register because at the time that uh, Shaw was up there with Ferry and Oswald, unawares of them, there was a voter registration rally for the Congress of Industri- uh, the Congress of Racial Equality. So the they were trying to get um, the ostensible reason was they wanted to get Oswald a job up in the area at this hospital. So one of the people they visited, Reese Morgan, who was like a local representative, told me he'd have a better shot at getting a job if he registered to vote. So when he registered to vote, unaware to Sean Ferry, okay, there was this massive voter registration drive. Okay, and so Oswald was seen by literally dozens of witnesses, okay, because they didn't know this was going to happen. And that kind of blew the whole operation, okay, you know, which I believe the intent was unbeknownst to Oswald. They wanted to get him into that hospital because they wanted to shift the files from being an employee to a patient so that on the day of the assassination, okay, they could say not only was this guy a commie, he was a crazy commie. Okay, but there's very, very few incidents that are better, you know, you know, fortified than this one as time has gone on. All right. I mean, to me, when I first started in this back, God, back in 1991 in a very serious way, you know, I'd only I only went to Clinton once. I've been since been there three times. Okay, and the thing gets more and more. You know, there's more and more testimony, more and more details come into this. There's no doubt that this thing happened, none at all. And it's one of the most, you know, in my opinion, it's one of the best pieces of evidence of a conspiracy before the fact that we have in this case.
At what point in the uh, in Garrison's investigation uh, did he believe? And he, of course, you know, later in life he was very outspoken about this. Uh, you know, the famous uh, Playboy interview talking about uh, you know the CIA's role in this. At what time? At what point did Garrison become convinced that the CIA basically ran this operation to kill Kennedy? In the summer of 1967. Okay, uh, because by this time he understood exactly what the measures were taking against him. And he understood just how sophisticated it was, just how strong it was, just how widespread it was. And he came to the conclusion that only something like the CIA, you know, could go ahead and do to him what was happening to him. All right? And also he began to go ahead and connect Oswald and every step of the way he would connect Oswald, almost every single person he connected Oswald to was somehow associated with the Central Intelligence Agency. But now, but let, let me mis- dispel something, okay? Because I think too many people feel that Garrison thought that this was a pure CIA operation. That's not true, okay? Because, you know, I've, as, as I read the interviews he gave, he came to believe that it was really a operation between a certain element of the Central Intelligence Agency, the anti-capture Cuban exiles, and in a small support role, the mob. Okay, because I uncovered an interview that he did in 19, I think it was 1975 or 76, in Harper's, where that's what he that's what he was telling the writer, who I think was Dick Russell. All right. And I think there's a lot of people today who would agree. For example, Anthony Summers in his book, Conspiracy, which I think was published in 1981, that is the, the model that he used, okay? You know, that it was a three-sided thing on the operational level between the CIA, the Cuban exiles, and to a lesser extent, the mafia, okay? You think, as I do, what I think, what I believe happened is before the fact, you had the CIA and the Cubans. When Oswald was not killed at the Texas Theater, which I believe was the original plan, okay, when he lived, I believe they called in the mob through Jack Ruby, you know, because the CIA had worked with the mafia on those Castro assassination plots, you know, and they probably got to somebody like McWilly, Louis McWilly, you know, um, who was a friend of Ruby's, and that's how they got Ruby in to the Dallas police uh, jail to go ahead and wipe out Oswald. And that's where the mafia connection exists, I think. And that's essentially what Garrison thought. Yeah, he, I think he, he was quoted as saying that the CIA couldn't face up to the American people and admit its former employees had conspired mm-hmm. to assassinate the president. So, you know, from the moment Kennedy's heart stopped beating, they had to attempt to sweep the whole conspiracy under the rug. In other words, you know, there was a certain... Uh, a group within the CIA that, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, I guess, is what right. he was trying to say there. He wasn't, right. you know, he wasn't implicating the entire agency. He was saying, I guess, sort of a rogue element within the agency. Right. But he, he, he said something else very interesting later in life, and I think that's very, uh, I mean, if he were alive today, and it's, uh, I guess it's been just over 20 years since he passed, uh, he said, I'm afraid based on my own experience that fascism will come to America in the name of national security. Boy, yeah. did he really nail that one, didn't he? Right. You're, well, you're darn right about that, aren't you? 
okay? Fascism will come to America in the name of national security. And boy, isn't that, isn't that the fact or what? Well, yeah. people talk about uh, uh, Syria as a, being a national security state. I think the same applies to the United States. And I'm wondering, you know, as it, uh, whether, whether 1963, November 22nd, 1963, was, was part of that process, a, a coup d'etat on this sort of long, slow march towards totalitarianism. Well, I, see, the thing is, if you've ever tried working on this case, before the Assassination Record Review Board. You know, when you tried to get documents, one of the things that they would always use to deny them was national security. Okay? You know, the thing is, when you finally declassified all these documents, national security had nothing to do with it. It was their security. It was these people in the FBI and the CIA. It was their security they were worried about because they were di- directly involved in the cover-up, and the CIA was directly involved in the actual conspiracy. Okay? And so that's what Garrison was saying there. And he was absolutely correct. You know? Because I mean, most people agree, as, as I do, that the people's... Well, you're lucky. You live up there in Canada, but people live down here. If you take polls down here, most people believe that this terrible cynicism the skepticism people have about the government began in 1964 with the issuance of the one report and polls carry uh, actually do prove that because when they they take you know take polls about you know do you believe in what your government is telling you there's a tremendous downward trend from about 1960 which it was it was up like 78 percent to I think the last one is 1998 or something which it was like 19%. And if you take a look at the poll, the biggest drop was 1964. Right. I, yeah, the numbers have been pretty consistent in terms of Americans who don't believe the sort of the, the Warren Commission, essentially, the, the findings of the no, Warren no, Commission. No, no, in but their se- government. Right, yeah, but there's another the, the poll. The Warren Commission, that's a different one. Okay, the latest polls I've seen on that one, it's about 75% yes, yes. of the public does not believe the what the Warren Commission said about Oswald. Exactly. And guess what? They're right. <laughs> Do you think, had, had uh, Garrison had access to the documents that you, know, that you now have had access to, would that have been an open and shut case against Clay Shaw? I think so. In fact, the CIA thought so. Because when they had the first meeting of the Garrison Group in September of 1967, you know, one of the guys who was part of it, Ray Roca, was James Angleton's right-hand man, said words of the effect, if Garrison is allowed to proceed as he's doing, Shaw will be convicted. And we know what happened right after that meeting. The CIA ratcheted up all the interference and all the obstruction uh, that they were going to give him. And that's why Shaw was not convicted. What, uh, what ultimately happened to Clay Shaw? Well, after Shaw was acquitted... Um, he filed a lawsuit uh, against Garrison, a civil suit against Garrison, okay? And what happened is Shaw passed away, I believe, in 1975. You can believe it. His lawyer, Ed Wegman, tried to continue the lawsuit, and it had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to actually get it thrown out, okay? Shaw retired uh, right after the trial. Okay, and he lived out his uh, the five or six years of his life down there in New Orleans. Okay, quietly 
rather quietly. Do you think he was sort of taken care of, if you know what I mean? So I think he was what? Well, do you think he, they, he was gotten rid of? Oh, no. I, 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 you know, I used to entertain thoughts about that, but that's nothing I can prove to any... Uh, that's nothing, that would be nothing more than speculation on my part. All right. Well, uh, what do you think, I guess in conclusion, here we are, the 50th uh, anniversary quickly coming our way. Uh, if Garrison were still alive... What do you think he would uh, make of this continued uh, interest in, in this case? Well, Garrison always believed that um, what had happened was one of the worst things that's ever happened in the United States. You know, that uh, in the, I think in the last few moments of The Tonight Show, when he was on with Johnny Carson, that disgraceful program, um, he said words of the effect, you know, you know, we, we, we can't continue to deny what happened to President Kennedy. If we continue to deny what happened to President Kennedy, the America as we know it will disappear, and a new state will come and take over. Well, and I, I think it was perfectly right. You know, this whole, what this has done to the social fabric of this country, the United States, has been one of the worst things that's happened in the last 50 years. And it's still, you know... I mean, it's still, you know, doing this damage in this country. And because the American people will not face up to it. And the media will not face up to it. All right, James, really appreciate it. It's uh, been a delight having you uh, for these eight programs. And uh, uh, again, the book is Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And of course, Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the New Hollywood. Appreciate your time once again. Okay, thank you, Richard. James Eugenio. All right, the website is down, but you can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Welcome to the broadcast, dear friends. Before we uh, roll out another uh, fine program, uh, just an alert once again. RichardSerrett.com, the website, your portal to The Conspiracy Show, uh, has been uh, hijacked, hacked uh, for the second time in, uh, in about a month. So until further notice... RichardSerrett.com will remain down uh, until I can redesign it, revamp it, relaunch it. And uh, uh, so look for an all new and improved RichardSerrett.com coming your way just as soon as I uh, possibly can get that uh, going again. Uh, not sure uh, exactly, you know, who the uh, the people are responsible if you uh, if you try to log on to RichardSerrett.com. Uh, I don't even want to mention their names, uh, but they, they they seem to take great pride in doing this, uh, you know, hacking into people's uh, websites. However, uh, we remain undaunted. Nothing going to slow me down. Uh, this is the day, of course, we celebrate Remembrance Day in Canada. Uh, we proudly wear the poppy in remembrance and thanks for all those who served this country in conflicts overseas. Uh, my father was a, a tank gunner during World War II a part of the uh, armored regiment, Fort Gary Horse, which is uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And he uh, hit the, the, uh, the Fort Gary Horse, that armored uh, regiment, uh, helped liberate Holland from the Nazis. Uh, so obviously, I, I'm very proud of my father's service. He passed away uh, New Year's Eve 1986 uh, at the age of 63. And, but I often wonder how he and other veterans that have passed on would feel about the state of the world today. 
but how it would make them feel after sacrificing so much in order to preserve our and our liberty, to see those same liberties and freedoms being eroded every day as we idly stand by, or should I say lie down. So this is always a difficult time of year for me. I proudly wear the poppy, but it's not enough to wear the poppy, friends. If we truly want to honor the memory of the brave men and women who fight for us, who fought for us, who died for us, then we've got to start standing up for ourselves and do our part to preserve our freedoms here on the home front. Because the greatest threat to our liberties is not some real or imagined terrorist cell in a cave in Afghanistan. It's our own complacency. I think I've made it pretty clear over the, uh, the years I've been doing this program uh, that I believe, I am certain, that there exists a spirit realm. A realm that is inhabited by angels and demons. And I say that, I suppose, at some risk uh, to my reputation. Uh, some might think that the, uh, the notion that someone might still believe in such things in, in, in 2013... Um, is, I don't know, quaint, bizarre, odd. That's fine. I'm willing to accept the, those, those labels. Uh, that's not going to dissuade me. Uh, one of the things that nailed it home for me was a trip down to Yonkers, New York, uh, a couple of years ago, where I met a board-certified psychiatrist who is on the, uh, the faculty of uh, Columbia University, a graduate uh, of Harvard, as I say, a board-certified uh, psychologist by the name of Peter Gallagher, uh, sorry, Dr. Richard Gallagher. And I met him at a, a seminary down in uh, Yonkers where he's on the faculty, and he told me about what he concluded was an authentic case of demonic possession the possession of a woman he called Julia. He went on to explain why he was led to this conclusion after ruling out all other sorts of mental illnesses and psychoses and so forth. A very uh, a chilling account. And he uh, managed uh, for me to speak with the priest from New York City, who remains anonymous to this day, uh, one night, anyway, at home, I received a phone call from this priest who uh, warned me, first of all, that if I was going to start investigating these sorts of things, I might be welcoming, uh, let's say, some undue attention uh, from the dark side, if you will. And he, presided, he proceeded to, to say a prayer for me. He said, I'm going to say this prayer before we start talking about this as a, as a means of protection. Anyway, this priest... Uh, verified everything that Dr. Gallagher had told me uh, and that he had uh, presided over the exorcism of this Julia, had witnessed her speaking in tongues, uh, and very, not in tongues, in strange tongues, in, in other languages. Uh, he witnessed her levitation. Uh, I could go on and on for hours uh, uh, and, and tell you about what I learned from Dr. Richard Gallagher about uh, this case. Uh, but it was... For me, just further confirmation that although exceedingly rare, I do believe there are instances where people are possessed by demons.
And that's where we're going to go uh, for the next hour. We're going to try and uh, talk about some credible cases of demonic possession. And then you can sit back and, and listen and either choose to ignore or refuse to believe that this sort of thing is possible, demonic possession. Um, in any event, you just, you'll make up your own mind. We're going to talk about the Pat Reading case, which took place, I guess, starting out nearly 30 years ago in a, uh, a small town in Connecticut. And um, to help us in this regard is our very own in-house paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, one of the leading experts on the paranormal, with more than 50 books now published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is now translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entities, contact experiences of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communication, spiritual growth and development, problem hauntings, and portals or geographic areas of intense paranormal activity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing very well. I just got back from a week in Sedona, Arizona, where I was doing a lot of research for several book projects. It was um, quite an exciting, packed week. And I, I hope I'm not telling tales out of class, but I believe you are now working on a book on this very topic we're about to, to dive into tonight, and that is demonic possessions. Well, it's certainly related to that. I'm doing a third book focusing on the jinn and their role in these types of problems. Uh, some of the, the jinn are very hostile to us. They can act like demons, and they can cause possessions. So I'm uh, featuring some of my cases that I've followed for a long period of time, and uh, I was out in Sedona interviewing other experts on uh, gin hauntings and possessions, and also studying the vortices of energy out there in Sedona. That's another project I'm doing on portal areas, you know, the places where we tend to have all kinds of contact with otherworldly beings, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Let's talk about the uh, the Pat uh, Reading uh, case in Connecticut. Uh, take us back, uh, I guess, the, what, the early 1980s, about 30 years ago? Yes, that's about when it started. This is a case that uh, John Zaffis worked on, and uh, John is a leading demonologist, very good friend of mine who lives not too far from me in Connecticut. And uh, John has documented this case very well, and he and I are working on a book about it. It's one of the more unusual possession cases. Possession runs the gamut uh, from cases that are very easily resolved to cases that are really pernicious and last for a long time and destroy lives and families. And unfortunately, the Pat Reading case falls into that. What's more, this case also stands out as an unusual example of no known good reason for this to happen. Uh, there are occasionally cases where people who have not been uh, inviting contact with dark entities uh, have led good and virtuous lives, have had uh, no drug or alcohol issues or uh, mental issues that might make them vulnerable. They suddenly fall prey to the demonic, and their lives literally go from normal to living in a hell. And that's what happened to Pat Reading. 
She was in her mid-50s in the 1980s, was living a happy and quiet life with her husband, Bill, her daughter, Michelle, uh, in uh, western Connecticut. And uh, one day, she was a Catholic woman um, and was, you know, looking after her family, um, you know, a nice person. One day, she was outside hanging her laundry, and... Uh, suddenly this force came up behind her and pushed her and literally pushed her to the ground. And she experienced then the unpleasantness of entity sexual rape. Uh, She was, um, her clothing was taken off from her waist down. She had a full rape experience with this uh, horrible uh, being and it left her rather bloody. The police were called. uh, She could not provide a description, of course, of the assailant and just make comments like, uh, you know, you will never find it. She was very dazed. And that's what started this. Uh, from then on, she was targeted by some dark, invisible force that uh, acted out against her in a very aggressive, hostile way and started plaguing the family. It just literally moved in and created all sorts of uh, haunting phenomena, wrappings, bumps, nightmares, shadow figures, poltergeist effects. The effect on Pat was a progression that we see in demonic possession cases. First, it starts with um, phenomena and aggressive acts towards someone. Then the, the person experiences a takeover where they feel their thoughts and emotions taken over, their behavior changes, their personality changes, and then pretty soon this entity has full control of them. That's what happened to Pat. Now, Michelle, her daughter, uh, witnessed, I guess, a number of these uh, attacks and at one point tried to intervene, did she not? And then she herself was attacked? Yes, Michelle was about 15 when these attacks started, and uh, as, as you can imagine, it was pretty traumatic for a teenage daughter to witness her mother going through this. As this entity, and actually it turned out to be a, a collection of entities, that's often the case, where it's more than one uh, demon involved in this. Um, Pat would have blackouts. They would take her over. She would have blackouts, collapse on the floor, crawl around on all fours, uh, swear, blaspheme. um, And uh, when one of these episodes started, um, Michelle, who uh, in in this particular case, she was old enough to drive. Uh, This was deeper on into the case. Uh, There's a a shrine in Connecticut to uh, Lourdes, and uh, it's a very holy place. And uh, Michelle thought that if she could only get her mother there to this, this holy shrine, uh, she would be relieved of these symptoms. So she really wrestled her into the car, and her mother felt like she weighed 10 times more than she did. She was a small, petite woman. And while Michelle was physically trying to help her mother, then this thing started attacking Michelle as well, punching her and pushing her. Uh, she was able to get her there to the shrine, but uh, not without being assaulted herself. All right, listen, we've got to take a, t- a quick time out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley here talking about demonic possession, the Pat Reading case. We'll also open up the lines. Do you believe in demonic possession and the right of exorcism? I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
Uh, this year marks the 40th anniversary of John Frankenheimer's The Exorcist, a movie that many consider to be the scariest movie of all time. Uh, and it is um, based on a true case, a real case of demonic possession, I believe. Uh, now, in the movie, of course, Linda Blair uh, plays the victim, but uh, the, the actual case was not uh, of, of a young girl. It was a young boy, a 13-year-old boy who has been identified uh, by the initial R. Uh, this was a case that took place uh, in Maryland, uh, not too far from Washington. Uh, and uh, there were some 26 people uh, in attendance during his exorcisms, and uh, all tell you know, very, you know, similar uh, stories about the horrible things that they witnessed. Again, uh, superhuman strength. Uh, uh, He was asked, this boy was asked uh, in Latin by the uh, the exorcist, a Father Hughes, uh, who has spoken publicly about this now. Father Hughes asked the boy in Latin, who are you? And the boy responded, I am legions. For those of you, of course, familiar with the New Testament, uh, will be uh, will know what that means. Of course, Jesus Christ performed exorcisms and uh, asked um, the victim of a demonic possession, "Who are you?" And that's that was the response he received: "I am legions." So uh, here we are, the 40th. Oh, and incidentally, the film "The Exorcist" was uh, was made not too far from here, in uh, Georgetown, less than an hour away from. Uh, from where I'm sitting right now. Now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us uh, to tell us about another a credible case of demonic possession. That would be the Pat Reading case, which took place in the uh, early 1980s. Uh, an unassuming uh, mother, housewife, living in a small town in, in western Connecticut, and uh, suddenly, in her mid-50s, uh, attacked, raped by some unseen dark force. Uh, now, you mentioned her daughter, Michelle, trying to get her to this shrine in Connecticut, which is dedicated to uh, Lourdes, of course, the healing waters of, uh, in Lourdes, France, uh, well known to many people. What happened when she finally got her there? She was able to get her calmed down. Uh, sometimes these episodes would just run their course and subside. And um, over the course of a little more than 10 years, uh, Pat was put through 16 exorcisms to try and expel these entities who resisted identifying themselves. That's one of the things that the exorcist tries to do is get the name of the possessing spirit or spirits, which gives them uh, a measure of control over the entities. Uh, Now, Pat was examined by uh, medical uh, experts and was determined not to have any physical or mental conditions that could account for these episodes. She didn't use drugs or alcohol? She didn't use drugs or alcohol? She did not drink, did did not uh, use any drugs. It's very important to rule those things out, uh, that there are no natural causes for this. Now, according to the teachings of the Church, possession, possession usually happens when humans provide an opportunity for dark forces to enter their lives. They might be engaged in certain occult activities, like uh, trying to conjure spirits to get them to do their bidding. Uh, they might be leading what the Church would call a sinful life, that is, in, you know, engaging in uh, immoral or illegal activities. Um, they might have been cursed, for example. Uh, but there was no known cause for this. 
in Pat's case. We do see that in, in a handful of cases. The, the Church explains them as, well, these people were uh, selected uh, by God to, to serve as an example of what can happen to even the pure. Uh, and so we must always be on guard against uh, the dark forces. So uh, over a period of time, uh, Pat deteriorated under these continual onslaughts, and uh, John Zappas was called in very early on in her affliction. Uh, she did contact uh, church people, and a priest brought a seminarian student uh, to do a blessing in the house. And uh, the, the student was scared away when he opened his bag with his holy objects. He had holy water and uh, a cross and some other implements, uh, his, his um, Bible and whatnot. The bottle of holy water levitated up out of the bag, and it frightened him so badly that he ran out, out of the house and wouldn't even do the blessing. My word. John Zappas was called in, and he followed the case for a long time. A period of time, and uh, brought in uh, a bishop, a Catholic bishop, a bishop by the name of uh, uh, Reverend McKenna, um, Robert McKenna, and he was uh, able to uh, work on Pat doing these exorcisms. It's not uncommon in possession cases for multiple exorcisms to have to take place before uh, the entities are eliminated. And and just, in that case... So I'm just going to say, Rosemary, just, you know, people uh, maybe have this misconception that, you know, the Catholic Church is running around performing exorcisms everywhere. This is not something that they, you know, they like to talk about, but they do have, um, you know, sort of a, a bench of exorcists ready to go. But there's a, a rigorous process, from what I understand, that they go through before they, you know, agree to perform or take a uh, perform an exorcism or take a case on what do you know about sort of what um, uh, what one has to go through in order to I guess gain acceptance um, by the Catholic Church or, or, or become a candidate for an exorcism is it is it a lengthy process it can be uh, the church expects natural causes to be examined first uh, the person might have to undergo medical examination, maybe even psychiatric examinations, to satisfy the, uh, the conditions that natural causes can be ruled out beyond reasonable doubt. And there is a chain of command that um, the, uh, the priests follow, too, that uh, the requests go up the line. And um, the permission to do an exorcism ha- has to come from uh, from high up, and um, not all priests are familiar with uh, how to do exorcisms. Um, in fact, some of them may never even uh, come in contact with a demonic case throughout their entire career. There are others like um, uh, Bishop McKenna who um, take on cases on a more independent basis. He's not doing them anymore because he's rather advanced in age, but he did work with some lay demonologists like uh, John's uncle, Ed Warren, and his wife, Lorraine Warren, and uh, some others in the uh, the Northeast area on some rather famous cases. Um, there are less strict procedures in uh, other denominations, 
and uh, there are varying techniques. The, the Catholic Church uh, has a, rit- a ritual for um, exercising the home. There are house exorcisms, and there's another ritual for exercising people. And uh, these procedures became fairly standardized from about the 17th century on, uh, including the procedures and the requirements for the exorcists themselves. And the Church has modified those uh, throughout um, the centuries. In other denominations, uh, the requirements vary considerably and, and are less strict and uh, they might be called deliverance uh, as well as exorcism. There are uh, a number of techniques. Well, Pat, uh, when she would have these full-blown possession attacks, and that's what happens to the victims, is they might have uh, long gaps between a sudden onset where the, the entity seems to be in full control uh, and uh, they will have blackouts and um, aberrant behavior, uh, acting like an animal, howling and screaming. And during an exorcism, their behavior can be quite extreme as well. Well, Pat would have, she was a tiny little woman, and she would have to be strapped down uh, into a chair and held down by several people because she would have this superhuman strength, which is a characteristic of possession. She would flail and uh, pull at her restraint, she was even able to free herself from some of these restraints. Uh, she screamed and, and gave out un- these unearthly shrieks and howls. Um, foul language is, is a part of these episodes, uh, blaspheming, uh, calling people four-letter words, and... Um, that, uh, you know, the religion is not going to do anything, uh, God is not going to be able to, uh, to get rid of them, you know, things like that. Speaking in tongues and foreign languages. Did she actually speak? Is it, is it documented that she spoke in other languages that she wouldn't have had knowledge of? It is, and I'm not sure how many uh, were involved, but she did have those episodes. And uh, she exhibited all the classic signs that, that the Church considers to be a demonstration of demonic possession. How about levitation? Did she herself levitate at any point off the bed? Or um, Well, in many of these cases of levitation, it's very brief. And it's not like the film show where people are like floating up over their bed. But what often happens is that in the, the throes of... Um, exhibiting this this wild behavior and supernormal strength, they can actually raise themselves up and sometimes even their chairs uh, up off the the, the floor uh, for these brief bursts. And uh, she did have that as well. Uh, uh, the she had horrible blackouts. What about uh, uh, physical marks on her body? For for example, the you know the famous uh, scene in in the movie The Exorcist, uh, where Linda Blair's character has, uh, I believe it says, "Help me," as if it's being branded onto her chest. This cry for help in deep inside her body, as if she's trapped in there. Uh, were any of those types of marks uh, evident or present on 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 Pat reading? She did exhibit bruises and scratches, and that's very common, where uh, long claw-like uh, red marks uh, that may even go quite deep 
and even bleed will show up on a body uh, without explanation. And she did have some of those phenomena as well. Uh, one of the uncanny things that happened to her husband, and this was early on in the case, uh, she gave him a warning one morning uh, to be careful at work. Now, he was um, a construction worker. He dealt with uh, power lines along the highways. He worked on a lot of highway construction. And he was handling some power lines later that day when um, the, the line went live. And uh, his coworkers didn't realize that he was still holding on to, to this uh, power line, and he was badly burned by electricity. He did have a heart condition, and over time it, um, it seemed to weaken him. Uh, he wasn't seriously injured at the time. He was taken to the hospital, but it did have a long-term effect on his health. And... Uh, um, it w- seemed to be one of the episodes related to the possession that is to torment the family members as well. Uh, they were not subjected to the same possession phenomena as Pat. Uh, the entities seemed to zero in on one person as their target. Uh, what happened, uh, I mean, ultimately to, to Pat reading? Uh, I mean, she underwent something like 15 or 60, I believe it was 16 exorcisms. Uh, did she ever she did. was she ever freed from this? Not entirely. Um, she really dealt with it for the rest of her life, and she died around the end of two thousand and four. She developed colon cancer. Uh, and uh, this is not uncommon for victims of these horrible possession cases to uh, to develop some sort of uh, serious health issues. They are so depleted, so worn down by um, these attacks that it does affect them. Now, um, the exorcisms would bring her temporarily, temporary relief, but never permanent relief. And uh, she, after 16 exorcisms, she, she did arrive at um, a period of, um, I wouldn't call it relief, but she wasn't under serious attack anymore, but she like lived on the edge because uh, she knew at any moment something could come back. The uh, possessing entities never really identified themselves satisfactorily. Uh, first, they said they, uh, they described themselves as seven horns of the ten devils, uh, when pressed to give a name, they uh, evaded that. And one finally said its name was Robert. Nobody knew who Robert was. Um, and uh, they said uh, that there were ten of them. Then they said there were nine of them. They kept giving different answers. Okay, listen, we'll take a time out here, uh, Rosemary. When we come back, I'll get um, your thoughts on what might have ha- actually happened to uh, Pat Reading. And then, time permitting, we'll we'll talk about another a famous case of uh, demonic possession uh, in Germany back in the 1950s and uh, right through to 1976, I believe. Uh, We'll also open the lines and ask people about their thoughts on the likelihood that demonic possession is a real phenomenon. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And we are talking about uh, demonic possession with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Her website is visionaryliving.com. Uh, we, we've been discussing the, the Pat Reading case, uh, 
which took place about 30 years ago in uh, a small town in Connecticut. Uh, Pat Reading passed away about 10 years ago. Her daughter as well, and her husband, all, all, all of them now gone. Uh, what happened to her daughter? Well, her daughter just died this year. She was 40 years old, and uh, she passed away in her sleep. And um, uh, I never met Pat. I got involved in um, working on the documentation of this case after she had passed. But I did meet Michelle, uh, who was a lovely woman, and uh, had her own story to tell uh, from her perspective in this episode as well. And uh, it's, no one really knows, uh, or at least no one has said exactly what, what happened to her. She was on a variety of, of medications, and it's possible that uh, she may have accidentally um, you know, taken too much of something, uh, but passed away in her sleep in July. Very sad. And, uh, and uh, Bill, the husband uh, of Pat Reading, also dead. Yes, he died several years ago. So um, they're all uh, they're all gone now, and uh, John made a promise to Pat uh, before she died that uh, that he would tell her story, and uh, so that's what we're working on now, and and it's a way of honoring her life as well. What do you think happened to Pat Reading, Rosemary? You know, I've looked at this case from a variety of perspectives too, because the first inclination is think is to think that, well, come on, there must be some reason why this happened. Uh, was there something in her personality uh, that just didn't come to light? But uh, there just doesn't seem to be any good explanation for it. Uh, so maybe she was one of these examples that the Church says, um, you know, happens uh, as uh, a warning to, to other people. You know, they, they say that some people sacrifice themselves um, as a, a way of teaching others that we can never let our guard down against the dark side. And her case does have some similarities to the case that you just mentioned from Germany, the Annalise Michelle case, uh, because she, too, didn't seem to have any good reason for becoming possessed. And uh, she went through a horrific experience for several years before dying in her mid-20s in 1976. She died during a prolonged exorcism, did she not? She did. She was quite emaciated, and uh, her actual cause of death was diagnosed as due to starvation. She was uh, a skeleton by the time she died. Um, Her problem started uh, when she was uh, a teenager, and uh, like many of these cases, it, it starts first with Um, some mental oppression. She had visions of demonic uh, faces. She she was a hypersensitive, kind of sickly girl anyway from childhood. Um, But she had a blackout, uh, and that's what started uh, her episode. She had a blackout uh, in school um, in 1968, and then began to suffer seizures, feelings of suffocation. Um, her parents took her to a doctor um, to see if she was having a neurological problem. She was prescribed various medications, but her real problem seemed to be spiritual. And uh, this invasion of these demonic faces and images and um, uh, oppressive presences 
began a takeover of her, and her personality changed. Um, she started exhibiting the uh, the symptoms of possession, uh, and uh, by the by the time she died, she could barely eat. Uh, she would act like an animal. Uh, she would do horrible things like urinate on the floor and then uh, lick it up. Uh, she would eat abnormal things, claw at the walls, bite the walls, uh, howl. Uh, she went through multiple exorcisms herself. Well, the, the twist in that case was after she died, the uh, two of the, uh, the priests who were involved in the exorcisms and her parents were charged with um, negligent homicide. Um, and the case was, was brought against them that um, her death could have been prevented, that she'd been allowed to deteriorate when uh, she should have been perhaps put on um, you know, some sort of intubation for, um, for nourishment. Uh, there was a trial, and um, the charges were dropped against the, um, uh, t- two of the doctors involved, um, people elevated her to sainthood, uh, and in fact, um, people began channeling her from the grave. Uh, pilgrims would go and, and visit her gravesite. Uh, a nun who was channeling her from the grave predicted that uh, she had become a saint, and if they dug her body up, they would find it uh, incorrupt. Her parents had the body dug up, and it was badly decomposed. And uh, but this didn't stop the faithful people said that um, her body was actually incorrupt and this was a false story. Uh, all four of the defendants were found guilty, her parents and, uh, and the other two were found guilty of negligent homicide. All right, I've got to take a time and, out, uh, Rosemary. Uh, stay with us and we'll come back and continue to uh, uh, talk about a demonic possession here in The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, Earlier, I mentioned my trip down to uh, Yonkers, uh, New York, where I interviewed uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher, board-certified psychiatrist, uh, who has, uh, who I uh, spoke to about what he believes is an authentic case of demonic possession, uh, a woman named Julia. And I just wanted to share this uh, story with you uh, quickly, Rosemary, uh, and and listeners, before we continue on uh, talking about other cases. But uh, Gallagher told me that uh, he was on the phone with the uh, the priest who performed the exorcism. Uh, or who was about to perform the exorcism. And um, they're chatting back and forth. They're both at remote locations uh, somewhere in the state of New York. When all of a sudden, this woman Julia's voice is on the phone as if she had picked up an extension and started joining in on the conversation but being, you know, speaking uh, in a very rude manner. Uh, And when Gallagher is telling me this, he was visibly shaken uh, remembering this experience. Imagine you're talking on the phone and all of a sudden this discarnate voice, this disembodied voice, is there on the phone with you. Uh, I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it's not out of the realm of possibility because all sorts of incredible phenomena can manifest in a possession case and even even in a negative haunting. I've witnessed some very strange things myself and I've had lots of interference uh, on the telephone uh, when I'm I'm dealing with these cases, I've never had a discarnate voice break in and carry on a conversation. But I have had voices in the background, including 
uh, demonic laughs and chuckles and uh, all kinds of interfering static noises, whistling, chirping, clicking, um, whatever it is that uh, that acts out in this manner, uh, demons, jinn, uh, negative entities, they are capable of um, doing these sorts of things. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Bishop McKenna, who um, uh, performed exorcisms on Pat Reading. And uh, McKenna was involved in another exorcism, I believe this time uh, exercising a house uh, in, 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 in rural Pennsylvania. Was it the, the, the Smurl House, the haunting, uh, the Smurl haunting? Yes, and that happened in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, or near Wilkesbury, actually, West Pittston. And uh, that was also in the 1980s. We seem to have a wave of these things in, in the 1980s. Uh, that case was handled also by Ed and Lorraine Warren and became uh, a media sensation. And uh, it, it started with uh, a family that uh, moved into a duplex. And they were an ordinary family. They had some kids, and um, they bought this uh, duplex uh, and moved in with their two daughters. And um, they were there for some time before strange things started happening. Now, they moved in in... Um, See, it was around the early 1970s, and it was a couple of years later by the time stuff started to happen. And it, it started with things that they couldn't explain, like stains appearing on the carpet. Um, then the, the husband, Jack, said his television set just inexplicably, inexplicably caught on fire. They had leaky pipes. Uh, then they started seeing shadowy figures. It became more and more demonic. There were... Uh, disturbances with their appliances, and uh, these phenomena escalated over time until the family got to be quite terrorized, phantom dogs, noises, um, things being thrown around. Uh, the husband claimed to, to have been raped by a succubus kind of entity. So they called in uh, various people to help them out, and that included the Warrens, and the Warrens brought in uh, Bishop McKenna. And he did two exorcisms on the house, which did not seem to help. And that uh, also is uh, not uncommon for, for exorcisms to uh, only provide temporary relief. Things got so bad that, that uh, the Smurl family eventually moved out, and uh, a book and a movie resulted from that haunting. Uh so what do you make of that case? I mean, I understand that uh, th- there was um, uh, an investigation. I'm not sure if it was the folks from the Center for Inquiry, uh, and they came up with some, I guess, less than supernatural type explanations for what was going on. Well, there were requests for uh, some of the... Um, there were skeptical investigators, yes. Uh, and some of them came from the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Uh, they go by the acronym PSYCOP, and uh, they're in New York State. And uh, That would be our good they, friend Joe Nickel, would it not? Yes, he, he is affiliated with them. Well, they requested uh, permission to conduct their own investigation and also to examine some of the evidence that the Warrens said they had. They said they had um, video footage of manifestations, but they declined to show um, the evidence to the media. And uh, permission was denied. But um, they had some 
possible explanations that really didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, they said that the, the swirls were delusional, uh, that uh, all of the horrible smells that happened in the house, and this is very common with possessions, and it happened in the Pat Reading case as well, foul smells like rotting meat and sewer smells. They said, well, there was just a broken sewer pipe somewhere around. Uh, they also uh, suggested that maybe the whole thing was due to pranks and that somehow the daughters might even be involved. Um, they also uh, suggested that uh, some of the phenomena were natural because there were abandoned mine tunnels in the area. And uh, we do see uh, in areas where there are um, tunnels and natural cave openings and things like that, that um, there is an increase in paranormal activity. But um, that's also tied to very old folklore that spirits use underground passages as a way of, of accessing uh, people and places. None of these explanations were satisfactory. And so we're, we're left with the evidence that the, the Smurls perhaps moved into uh, an area that had some latent uh, occupation. And um, this is also characteristic in hauntings, that uh, land itself can be haunted, and uh, the right people move in with um, the, the right energy. And it, it's like putting... Uh, uh, you know, a, a match to uh, to Tinder, you know, something ignites. And uh, the two girls were going through pu puberty, and sometimes that's related to um, explosions of paranormal activity as well. I've heard that, Rosemary, and I've, really never, quite, I've never quite understood that. Uh, um, um, girls going through puberty and poltergeist activity. What is the connection there? I've never understood that. It's been documented in parapsychology as um, naturally caused psychokinetic activity, and it has been determined to be the cause in, in other poltergeist cases. These are situations where objects, objects get thrown around uh, rather violently, where uh, people are attacked at night by in, um, invisible entities. And they have been tied to um, not only to puberty, uh, for in both males and females, but also to repressed emotions, intense repressed emotions like anger and frustration, and even uh, repressed sexuality. There was a famous case from the 30s investigated by uh, Nandor Fodor, who was a, a respected psychical research. It was a vampire case. It was called the Thornton Heath Vampire Case. And um, a woman claimed to be attacked by this demonic kind of entity that preyed upon her like a vampire. And uh, in his lengthy examination of the case, he, f he felt it was really her um, repressed sexual um, tension that was being projected out into the physical environment. These cases often resolve when the, the people's emotions get resolved, and in the case of puberty, when the individuals get past pu puberty. But there's something about all of these roiling emotions within a person that, in rare cases, gets projected out into the environment and takes on kind of like a thought form activity all on its own. It's, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, as you're saying all this, of the, uh, the Salem witch trials and whether that may have been something at work there. 
it certainly could have been because the, the primary accusers were girls. And uh, they were girls who would have been on the verge of, uh, of puberty. And in fact, uh, some of them were even well into their teens. And um, they manifested phenomena. Uh, the evidence seems to indicate that they probably made a lot of it up as well. But they, they did manifest phenomena and hysterical behavior and... Um, you know, doctors were brought in and they couldn't find any known causes. Well, back in, in those times, in the late 1600s, uh, there was a great deal of fear about the work of the devil, and um, the, the pilgrims and the Puritans were constantly being preached at about uh, being in danger of, of um, being influenced by the devil. And so when no natural cause could be found for the girls' hysteria, uh, the, they automatically jumped to the conclusion that, that the devil had taken possession of them and uh, that the, there were people in the community who were witches and who, who were using witchcraft to, uh, to summon these, these evil forces into the community. Rosemary, what's the difference between, I mean, how do you know if you have um, a, a garden variety, if I can use that term, ghost problem, or whether, in fact, you have a demon problem, or is there a difference? There is indeed a difference. Uh, I have come to the conclusion after, uh, you know, investigating many, many cases over, over the past 30 years that I've been in the field that most ghost hauntings are very benign. It's residual energy, uh, kind of an imprint, uh, stuff that's sort of left behind uh, life imprints, by, by people who have invested a great deal of emotion and energy in a particular place. And when things become more active, when there seems to be a presence that acts out against people um, and seems to be intelligent and want to engage with people and have hostile, aggressive behavior toward individuals, we're not dealing with ghosts. We are dealing with spirits, entities, hostile entities, and sometimes they can masquerade as ghosts. They will take on forms that um, look like ghosts. Uh, we might think we're dealing with um, someone who used to live there and maybe died in a location. But um, these are very clever entities, and uh, they can take a range of, of identities. There's uh, the demonic uh, that we associate with the forces of evil. There are jinn who are supernatural entities, who uh, many of whom don't like people and uh, can take them over in possession. Fairies have been uh, blamed for, for possession cases in the past. Um, and there are a whole host of entities of varying dispositions and, and um, determinations that we would class as demonic, ranging from mischievous to the out-and-out evil, uh, that can play havoc in an environment and with individuals. All right, Rosemary. Well, uh, that's not something I would wish on my worst enemy. Uh, well, maybe I wouldn't go that far. Anyway, <laughs> uh, always a pleasure. And they, they can and they can plague uh, the investigators as well. It's uh, very common for exorcists and investigators to uh, to be targets themselves just by investigating cases. Well, having said that, Rosemary, you be careful. I am all the time, Richard. All right. Thank you, Rosemary. Have a good evening. We'll talk next month. 
Thank you very much. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Uh, just a quick note. Uh, recently, I interviewed James D. Eugenio talking about uh, Kevin Costner as Jim Garrison. I mentioned Garrison was a, or uh, Costner was a friend of George Bush. Uh, Jim just sent me a note. Please contact the. Uh, this comes from a friend of Kevin Costner's emailing me. Please correct the talk show host. For the record, Kevin is not a Republican, nor is he friends with George Herbert Walker Bush. He was invited to play golf with him a couple of times while they were both in the same city, but that's where it ends. All right. Kevin Costner, not a Republican, not friends with George Bush. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week with Jim Mars, Nelson Thal, our big JFK 50th anniversary special. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.